Okay, one announcement before we get started. I have um, need to remind everybody that next week there will be no midweek Bible class. Not on Tuesday night, not on Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. Everybody gets a week off. That means that doesn't mean you don't have to apply any doctrine next week, but just means that you don't have to uh, come down here and sit in the cold. We will uh, take up the next week. I'll be going to the WHW conference next week, so for those of you who uh, will be praying for that, I appreciate a lot of prayer. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this uh, evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to fellowship as believers around the teaching of your word. We thank you that you have revealed to us absolute truth and that it is on the basis of what you have revealed to us that we can develop a consistent understanding of the world around us, an accurate understanding of the world around us, and that we can begin to uh, think accurately about the details within the that world, within our universe, so that we can... Uh, continue to exercise the mandate given to Adam to exercise dominion over all the earth. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, for our president, that you would guide and direct him, strengthen his courage. Uh, So many assault him on a daily basis. We pray that you would continue to uh, keep him firm and and directed in his vision. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us now with the teaching of your word, give us a better understanding of who we are, As a result of Adam's fall, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis 3. Or, excuse me, yeah, Genesis 3. Genesis 3, we've come down to verse 7. We're in verse 8, actually. And I want to review a chart I put up here when we did our overview of chapters 2 and 3. This section we're in in Genesis began in Genesis 2, 4, and extends down through the end of chapter 4. This, this is an integrated unit in Genesis. In the Hebrew, this is marked off by these phrases. These are the generations of. This is the history of. Uh, actually, in the Hebrew, it uses the, the word toledot. This is the record of. And each of those statements comes at the end of a section. So we uh, looked at this section in terms of an overview, and the whole section, these three chapters, are built on sort of a chiasm. And a chiasm is a literary device where you structure the material that you're using to communicate in such a way that it would go, you'd have your first statement, which we'll designate as A. Your second statement would be uh, designated as statement B. 
Then your third statement would be statement C. Then you may have a fourth statement that mirrors or reflects something in your first B statement, so that becomes B prime, and you, so you come back out, indent uh, another uh, another indention there, to, to, so all your Bs line up on the same level, and then you come back to A. And as you can see, with the B indenting and then the C indenting, you have a line going in and then a line going out, and this presents the left-hand side of the letter, what we would call X, or in the Greek it's, it's the letter key or chi. And so this was called a chiasm. Uh, the Latins called it a chiasmus. And the emphasis in a chiasm as a literary device is to put the emphasis on whatever is in the center of the discussion. It's not that the other doesn't have relevance or significance, but that what the author is doing is drawing your attention to a point, just as if you go to the art museum and you're looking at a a piece of art, often you will see one point in that painting that is an area uh, where, where the light focuses your eyes and draws you right to that particular point. And that's the purpose of this sort of structure. Of course, a lot of this is just lost whenever you slip over into another language and into translation. So let's review that structure. The first statement it deals with the creation of man in chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. And there we saw that God blesses man and places him in a perfect environment and supplies his every need. We emphasize the importance of the sufficiency of God's love in that section. Then in the next section, you have the creation of the woman. After he creates the man, calls the man, gives him the prohibition, then he creates the woman. And this is described in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, where God creates the woman as the helper or assistant for the man in carrying out the divine call or mission. Then see the third section focuses on the serpent. See, these are all the characters in the drama. First the man, then the woman, then the serpent. The serpent tempts the woman, and there is the failure of the man and the woman and the fall in uh, that section. And the man and the woman sin, and God uncovers or discloses that sin, and this is in the section of verses 6 through 13. And this forms the centerpiece of this whole section from chapter 2, verse 4, down through the end of chapter chapter 4. So the center of this whole discussion is on the sin of the man and the woman and God's disclosure of that sin in chapter 3, verses 6 to 13. Then we have the punishment of the serpent that mirrors the temptation by the serpent in 3, 1 through 5. So the punishment of the serpent and God indicates that there will be continuous warfare between the serpent seed and the woman seed in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Then there's punishment of the woman to mirror the creation of the woman. Punishment of the woman is outlined in chapter 3, verse 16, that the woman will be at enmity with the man, and there will also be uh, a multiplication of pain in childbirth. And then A prime focuses on the man, the male, and the punishment of the male, that man and the environment are spoiled, cursed, corrupted, 
and at enmity with one another. And this is described in 3.17 down to verse 24. So where we are in our study is we've already begun to look at 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7, in chapter 3 last time and the fall. And this time we see God's uh, uncovering of the sin and disclosure of that sin in verse 8. So our focus is now on verse 8. And here we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So at this point we see God coming to confront Adam and Ishaw. Remember, he doesn't name her Eve until the end of this uh, episode. She is still known as Ishaw, which indicates her source of coming out from the side of the man and her role, which is to be the support and assistant to the man. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the term in the cool of the day is not uh, accurate. Actually, it's an extremely odd Hebrew idiom that is used only this one time in the scriptures, and it means in the uh, literally it has the idea in the spirit uh, of the day, and it is an idiom for the afternoon time. And it is a reminder that God had warned the man that if he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day, back in verse 17 of chapter 2, for in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And so the, the reference to the cool of the day doesn't mean the cool of the day. It's not the wind of the day. It is an obscure idiom that is picked up in a couple of cognate languages. And from that we see that it means the afternoon time. And so it's the emphasis that the author wants us to to see here is in the afternoon of the very day where they have disobeyed God and eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the text sets up the situation. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking. And the term walking is not really an anthropomorphism at this point. Now, remember, an anthropomorphism is a figure of speech. Let me write it up here for you. Anthropomorphism comes from two Greek words, anthropos, which means man, and morphism or morphe, um, which means form. And it is the idea that you attribute to God human form, the characteristics of human physical form, in order to communicate, that you attribute to God human physical form that he does not actually possess, in order to communicate something to man about God's plans, purposes, and policies. That is what an anthropomorphism is. Normally, when we see a term such as God walking, God doesn't walk. But this would be the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who clearly has certain uh, appearances in the Old Testament where he has a pre-incarnate form. And this form is in the form of a man. And we call these theophanies. 
singular is spelled theophany, P-H-A-N-Y. And a theophany is an appearance of God. Now, we know from several things that we have studied that God the Father never appears to anyone in the Old Testament. We know that from John 1.17, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten, he has revealed him. In several places, it indicates that God the Father never reveals himself. That is the role of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. So God the Son is coming in a pre-incarnate body, which is similar to a human form, and he is walking in the garden. And as they hear him, and they hear the sound of him coming, they hide. Now, we're not told at this point why they hide. There's a drama. There's a certain... uh, uh, tension that's being built in the narrative, a question that Adam, we just know they heard the sound of the Lord walking, they hid themselves, and that should leave the reader uh, a- answering the question or asking the question, why are they hiding? What's going on? See, the author is pulling us into the story, pulling us into the episode. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, what we see here is a physical demonstration of what takes place in to every single human being in Romans 1. This is the confrontation of a holy and righteous God and what happens when a holy and righteous God confronts mankind who is minus R. You see, when Adam was created, he is created as a perfect image and likeness of God. He is He is a representative of God. Thus, he possessed at creation perfect righteousness. And there is perfect rapport between God and man. The instant he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. He lost that perfect righteousness, and his relationship with God was severed. This is the thrust, as we've studied again and again, of Genesis 2.17, and the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. They did not die physically. Now, one thing I have noticed in reading a lot of commentaries and a lot of literature lately is that there are a number of Christians that do not make this distinction clear enough in their understanding of what happens. They think that physical death is the penalty for sin. And we have to read the text very carefully here to notice that physical death is not the the judgment for sin. See, there is a judicial penalty that is outlined in Genesis 2.17. And that judicial penalty takes place at the instant that they disobey God. Now, they don't die... Instantly, Adam doesn't die for 930 years. This isn't a progressive penalty. The verbiage of Genesis 2.17 does not allow for progressive dying. I read that in one commentary today, that they began to die physically. Well, they began to deteriorate physically. And in that sense, they began to die physically. But what the author meant was that the penalty of sin began to go into effect. Well, no, the penalty of of sin instantly went into effect, and we see its consequences here, that the sinner, the minus R sinner, has an orientation, and that orientation is is, is an orientation of arrogance 
It is an orientation of autonomy or asserting his own independence from God. The word autonomy means self-law. From autos meaning self, namas meaning law. So he has this double facet to his nature, and the result of that is that he is constitutionally oriented toward rebellion. And let's see how the New Testament describes this. Hold your place in Genesis 3, and let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And this section in Romans is one that we've been to so many times. The pages ought to be torn and soiled, and verses ought to be marked up, and you ought to be able to find it very easily. Romans 1, 18 and following is a section where Paul begins to outline the historical the, the historical outworking of God's condemnation of the human race. So it's focusing on a judicial aspect. This is the key to understanding all of Romans. Romans is talking about righteousness. It's talking about man's lack of righteousness and how God solves the problem of man's righteousness by imputing righteousness. That's Romans chapter 3 and the consequences, and, and Romans 3 and 4, and the consequences of imputed righteousness in Romans 5 and, and following. But at the very beginning, the way Paul sets up Romans in a very logical order, he first lays down the case that man fails to come up to God's righteousness and all of the human race, Gentile and Jew alike, are under the condemnation of God's justice God's justice because man has failed to live up to God's righteous standard. So let's just begin with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, one of the things that comes out in this is that there is a certain amount of discussion in uh, among theologians as to the nature of that verb, suppress. There are those who are in the Calvinistic and hyper-Calvinistic camp who take that as a, as a nomic tense, nomic sense. That means it's a universal truth that applies at all times and all ways to everybody. And so if, if that's true, then who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness means that all mankind always suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. But if you take this as a historical situation, and I think it is, I think that what we have here in verses 18 and following is a summary of the Gentile rejection of God and God's judgment on them. And what happened is that God revealed his judgment against unrighteousness and ungodliness in the Old Testament in either this period before the flood or after the flood. And it was against the men who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And then the phrase, who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, is an adverbial, I mean, excuse me, an adjectival participle describing the men. What kind of men does God reveal his wrath against? It is men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But nevertheless... I don't want to get bogged down in a lot of exegetical details on verse 18. The one thing I want to point out here is that this is the tendency or the trend of fallen man is to suppress the truth. 
This is their, their action. They are suppressing the truth. And you see this from day one with Adam. As soon as God begins to walk in the garden, what does Adam do? He suppresses the truth about himself. He wants to hide the truth. He wants to cover up the truth. He doesn't want to expose himself now that he realizes he is naked and vulnerable and exposed morally before a righteous God. He wants to hide. So the way that suppression uh, reveals itself in Adam is he wants to hide from God, and as we'll see, he wants to come up with his own solution to cover up the problem. So Romans 1.18 describes the action of Genesis 3.9. This is what's taking place here. They are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They are trying to, man is trying to construct his own understanding of reality. This is the orientation of the fallen human mind. It tries to reconstruct reality according to its own fallen standards. So that when Adam sins and he now lives in a fallen world, the instant he sinned, the entire universe changed because there's this ripple effect from his spiritual decision, and we will see that in just a minute. But as a result of that ripple effect, he's now living in a different world than the one he lived in two seconds earlier. It is now a fallen world, and rather than being under the authority of God and interpreting the world under the authority of God and the revelation of God, Adam now wants to reinterpret the world on his own terms. Not listening to God, but determining everything and its relationship to him on his own terms. That's the orientation of arrogance. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the afternoon, and Adam and Ishah hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And every time the author repeats that phrase, tree or trees of the garden, what he's doing is he's bringing back to our mind that this is where the problem occurred. They violated God's mandate in relationship to one tree in the garden. Then in verse 9, we see the confrontation. Then the Lord God called to Adam. Notice, God doesn't call to the woman. He calls to the man. Why? Because the prohibition is originally given to the man. The man is the one who is responsible as the head of the race. This is where we're going to build our doctrine of what is called the federal headship of Adam. Federal headship. Now, that term federal doesn't refer to the federal government. Remember, we were, the United States of America was originally founded as a representative republic. And it, was, it had a federal government, which, and the term federal has the idea of a representation or representative. So, Adam is our federal head because he is the designated responsible party and his decision is viewed as our decision. Now, some people say, well, how can that be fair? I mean, we would have done it different. Well, in the omniscience of God, God knows that if you were placed in that garden, you would have made the same decision Adam would have made. Adam made. You wouldn't have done it any different. You might have think that you would have lasted a second or two longer, but Adam was a lot smarter than you are. 
uh, if you were put in that same place without the knowledge you know now, you would make the same decision. And this is a, the same thing is true of certain decisions we make uh, in, with, in reference to our government. We elect a congressman, and that congressman is our representative. And whether you agree or disagree with the way he votes, his vote is your vote because he's your representative. And that's why it's important to make sure you don't get somebody in there that's a real loser. But whoever you elect, that is your representative, and whether you agree or disagree, his vote is your vote. You are responsible. And that is the same thing that happens with Adam. He is the responsible party, and his decision is our decision, the decision of the entire human race. So when he falls, when he sins, the entire human race also falls. Now, he is not simply related to the race federally. He is also related to the human race. And the other term that is developed in theology is seminally. He is the seminal head as well because he is tied. The word seminal has to do with seed. He is biologically related to everyone. So we are in Adam seminally. And he is also the federal head. Both of those are true. What's happened in theology is theologians sometimes sit up there and they say, well, is it a federal headship or a seminal headship? And you'll see all kinds of discussion. It's one or the other. It's both. They are both true. It's not one to the exclusion of the other. But we have to understand that each is in a slightly different way, and we will eventually study that. So what we have in verse Eight is the or in verse nine is the emphasis on Adam, on Adam. It is Adam that God confronts first, not the woman. She is the first one to sin, but her sin. You know, if we take a hypothetical question and we just say, "What if?" the what the answer to "What if?" What if Isha had sinned and Adam had not? What would happen? Well, the, I don't know what happened, but the race would not have fallen. She would have fallen, but if, let's say they had kids. The kids would not be fallen because it wasn't her decision that was determinative. It is his decision that changes the nature of history because he is the one that is at issue. So God calls to Adam and says to him, where are you? Now, God isn't ignorant of where Adam is. God isn't saying, oh gosh, Adam, we're supposed to meet over here by the pond and you're not here. Where are you? Are we playing a game of hide and seek and I can't find you? See, God is omniscient. He knows exactly where Adam is. He's really asking a question along the lines of, uh, where are you and why are you where you are? He's emphasizing that, where are you? You're not where you're supposed to be, so think about where you are. God wants Adam to focus on his position hiding out there in the trees. So the emphasis here is not to find out where he is, but why he is where he is. And this is clear from the way Adam answers. Adam understands what God's after. Adam doesn't say, oh, God, I'm over here behind the fig tree. We just got through putting the leaves together, and now we're, uh, we've got our clothes on. What Adam does in his answer in verse 10 is to explain what the, where, why he is where he is. So in verse 10 we read, So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. Now in verse 8 we were just told they heard the sound of the Lord, and apparently the sound that they heard was the sound of his voice. 
said, we, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, there's a lot in that verse, and we need to think about this a minute. What Adam realizes as soon as he hears God is that he is afraid. The response, the response of fallen man to God is fear. And that fear is related to condemnation. He knows at the very core of his person that he is condemned. Now, let's, I should have had you hold your place in Romans 1. We're going to go back to Romans 1 for just a minute and see how Romans 1 elucidates this. After Romans 1.18, where we're told that man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, there is an internal knowledge of God. The wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness of all men, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, God has revealed to every human being his, the reality of his existence. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is exactly what happens to Adam. He becomes futile, empty in his thinking. He's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He knows God exists, but he's trying to act as if God doesn't exist. He's, he's hiding from him. How can you hide from an omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient God? But Adam, in arrogance, the arrogance blinds us to the truth. He's trying to reconstruct reality. It's not what it is. It's what I want it to be, and I'm going to be able to hide and get away with this. So he is afraid, and this fear is related to condemnation. He knows he is under condemnation, and he is guilty of violating God's prohibition. So he's afraid because he is naked. He is afraid because he is naked, and this is that uh, word we saw last time in the uh, in the Hebrew arum. A-R-U-M, which there's a play on words coming up here, another pun to get our attention. So he says, I was afraid because I was naked. Now the nakedness indicates he is vulnerable and he is exposed. And what has exposed him is he is minus R. He lacks righteousness and he is afraid of condemnation. Now, I want you to hold your place here again, and let's go back to the New Testament to a passage in 1 John. A passage in 1 John. Okay, we're in 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. 1 John 4, 17 and 18. The context of 1 John 4 
goes back to an understanding of the warning in 1 John 2, uh, 28. Now little children abide in him, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. What happens at the coming of Christ? Judgment. There's the judgment seat of Christ. This isn't talking about the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. It's talking about the uh, Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ for believers. So the context is talking about being prepared for that evaluation judgment at the Bema seat. 1 John 4.17, Love has been matured among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Not shame, 1 John 2.28, but boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Now notice he's contrasting fear and love. Now most of us would not think of contrasting fear and love. But John is contrasting fear and love because he says perfect love casts out fear. What is the fear here? The fear is this sort of existential terror that every human being has when confronted with the perfect righteousness of God. And as a result of that, when the unrighteous fallen man is confronted with the perfect righteousness of God, the result is terror, fear, deep in the core of our soul. And so man is trying to run around and cover this up and camouflage it with everything he can so that he doesn't have to face the fact on a day-to-day basis that God is, has condemned him. And so this is why man works so so strenuously to come up with alternative explanations of creation, alternative explanations of origins, alternative explanations of who and what man is, is to cover up this deep, profound, existential uh, terror in the soul because he knows God exists and he knows he's condemned. The only thing that is going to get rid of that is for the believer to mature in love, and that starts at the cross, and it extends through spiritual growth, so that the believer who is matured in love, that's the First uh, John 4:17, knows that when he stands before the great uh, the uh, judgment seat of Christ, that he will not be need to be afraid because there will be no sense of shame. He will ha- he has grown and matured as a believer and produced gold, silver, and precious stones under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Now let's go back to Genesis three ten. So Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God's response is in verse 11. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? How did you come to an understanding that you were vulnerable and exposed? Have you eaten from the tree from uh, tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Actually, in the Hebrew... The word order is switched around for emphasis. The emphasis comes at the beginning of the sentence, From the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat, have you eaten? That is the question. And the focus is on the tree and on the act of disobedience. So God doesn't sort of dance around the issue. He just comes right out and confronts the man with the issue of the tree. Have you eaten from the tree? And at this time, if you notice, you have mention of the word, uh, of the verb to eat. 
in verse 11, and it's there twice. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then again in verse 12, the woman, I mean, the man is going to answer and utilize the verb ate in that verse. In verse 13, the woman is going to use the verb ate in verse 13. And then in verse 14, when God announces the judgment on the serpent, the serpent is going to be told that he will eat dust. So there is this repetition, at least four or five times, of the verb akal, which means to eat, to remind us of the fact that the sin is eating. The sin wasn't fornication, it wasn't uh, racism, it wasn't... uh, uh, any other form of modern modern sin. They didn't get drunk. It wasn't sexual intercourse. It was eating. It was just a simple act of eating, but it was in disobedience to God. And so the sin that plunged the whole universe into condemnation and judgment was just a simple little act, but it was an act of disobedience. So when God comes to the man, he asks the question, and he says, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And look at the man's response. This is the first indication of how mankind wants to handle his responsibility and accountability to God when it comes to sin. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So see, he's real sharp here. This is why Adam was one of the most brilliant human beings to ever, uh, ever existed, because his answer is very short and to the point, but he manages to blame both the woman and God. So he is developing a skill right off the bat. Notice how he didn't have to learn this. He didn't have to take two or three weeks to figure out how to... Uh, uh, shift the blame. It is the natural orientation of the fallen creature to shift blame and to avoid responsibility. This is violation of what? The first divine institution, which is human responsibility and accountability. So as a result of that, fallen man has a natural orientation to avoid accountability and responsibility. And we see this every time any political leader or any other kind of leader is uh, exposed for some sort of malfeasance or wrongdoing, they immediately say, it didn't happen, I don't know anything about it, and the issue is always, what did they know and when did they know it? And if these guys would just learn to come right out in the open and say, yes, I did that, I was wrong, they would just solve a lot of problems, but they always seem to compound it with all sorts of, co- uh, of acts of covering up. So the man shifts responsibility. It's not just the woman, but there's this subtle uh, stab at God. You gave her to me. If you hadn't given me this woman, I was fine out there all by myself, God. I was naming the animals. You came along and put me to sleep, gave me this woman. And look what she did to me. If you hadn't done this. So he just blames God. And God just sidesteps the whole blame game. Doesn't fall. Now, this is a lesson for parents. This is a real lesson for parents that when you're dealing with your kids and you have one kid blame the other kid, you don't even fall into the trap. Just ignore the whole thing. Just then, you just go straight to the next kid. That's what God does. He he just ignores the the blame. Doesn't get sucked into their agenda at all, and he just goes to the woman in verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this you have done?" 
And actually, the the statement there sounds, if you take it literally, it's as if God doesn't know what's happened. But he's really saying is, what is this you have done? What in the world have you done? Do you have a clue what you have done? Or do you realize the significance of what you have done? And the woman answers, and of course, she's already learning from the man that you, you don't take responsibility, you just blame someone else. So she said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. So she admits, finally, that, well, both of them have admitted that they ate, but they want to uh, ignore any kind of responsibility for this. Now, this is this shows that there is a difference in the culpability of the woman and the culpability of the man. She is deceived, but he goes went into it with his eyes open. This is picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. And the reason I keep, uh, some of the reason I'm going over to these New Testament passages is because I want you to see that the new, how the New Testament treats this. The New Testament treats this as something that literally happened. This isn't some mythology. This isn't something that, that uh, was, was developed just to explain uh, origin of man and the origin of clothing and the origin of evil, but this is treated by the New Testament writers as a literal physical historical event. And in 1 Peter chapter I mean 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 to 15 Paul is going to give instructions as to how males and females are to function in the corporate worship of the local church. And this is an extremely controversial passage, but it's only controversial if you don't like what it says. And in verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And there's all kinds of gymnastics going on today to try to explain this away, to teach in an authoritative manner or some such nonsense. But actually the way it's constructed in the Greek, the two infinitives, to teach and to have authority are separated at different ends of the sentence. And that means you can't mix them up. You can't say that one modifies the other. That would be an unusual construction anyway. So what Paul actually says is to teach, I do not permit a woman or to have authority. So the emphasis is on the first infinitive of the verse, which is on teaching. And he makes it real clear that he doesn't allow a woman to teach the Scriptures. And what I find is that a difficulty is finding any justification of the Scriptures for women teaching the Scriptures in any context other than to children. I don't see any justification for women's Bible studies. I just don't. Paul makes it real clear. He doesn't say, I don't permit, a, a, I do permit women to teach with the Scriptures. He says, I do not permit permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. The over a man modifies the second infinitive authority. It's not saying I don't... Let me put this up on the overhead so you can see it. When he says, I don't permit a woman to teach, the way it comes across in the English is if teaching and authority both relate to over a man. But the way it's structured in the Greek is teaching 
is one thing, and authority over a man is a second thing. Now people say, well, what about Titus? Titus says that women can t- older women can teach younger women. So we can have Bible studies where older women teach younger women. It doesn't say in Titus that older women teach younger women the Bible. It says older women are to teach younger women uh, to love their husbands, to be good workers in the home, to love their children. In other words, the context of the teaching is a context of sort of a one-on-one mentoring of older women to younger women to teach them how to be good wives and how to be good mothers and how to take care of the house. But the focus, the content of the teaching in Titus 1 is teaching related to uh, domestic responsibilities. So Paul goes on to say, to give his reason or his rationale for why he doesn't allow women to teach or to have authority over a man. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He goes right back to creation and the order of creation. And then he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And the idea in the deception is not just the fact that, that the serpent sort of pulled the wool over her eyes and said, look, you're not going to really die and, and, and you're going to be like God, but that the woman came out from under her God-ordained authority and made the decision independently of the man. Now, we're not living in a perfect environment anymore, so ladies, if you make a decision, and I'm not saying that, that you always do, or you always make a decision related to your husband now because he's always going to be right, but in that pre-fall environment, Adam was going to be right, and by removing herself from his authority, she was putting herself in a position of vulnerability and deception. Now, Verses 8 to 13 then describe the confrontation from God and God's exposure of the fact that man is sin, is a sinner, and he has fallen. Things are different now. And then in verse 14 we come to the next section where God outlines the consequences of the fall. Now this section is commonly referred to as the curse. And you'll probably see it that way in your, in your Bible. And because we get sloppy in our terminology, we talk about this as the curse, as if there are three stages to the curse. The first stage being to the serpent, the second to the woman, and the third to the man. But the word curse actually is only used in relationship to the serpent. This is really more the sense of a divine oracle. What God is doing here is giving the consequences of their action. He is outlining how the world has changed, how the universe has changed as a result of man's decision to disobey him. The reason I make this point is that there is a difference between the judicial penalty of sin and the consequences of sin. As I pointed out earlier, there are many Christians who do not distinguish between spiritual death and physical death in terms of the in terms of the the penalty for sin and the consequences of that penalty. But physical death is not mentioned until we get down to verse 
19, the second part of verse 19, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That is the first mention of physical death. Now you have a number of other consequences that are listed in this section. Let's just take one. One one of those that we see is that the woman will have uh, pain in childbirth. Now, would you say that that was a penalty for sin? That's not the penalty for sin. Jesus did not pay that penalty on the cross. He did not go into labor. Okay? Let's be consistent here. Furthermore, we're told that that um, in the second part of or in verse 17, that the ground is cursed. That's the second mention of the word curse. The ground is cursed. And in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so there's going to be toil. That's not the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin was what was outlined in Genesis 2.17. And that was, in the day that you eat from it, you shall certainly die. So we have a judicial penalty there. And these are consequences. And that has tremendous implications for understanding what takes place at the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, between between 12 noon and 3 p.m., there's darkness on the face of the earth, and it's during that time that Jesus Christ is judged for the sins of the world. He pays that spiritual death penalty. But physical death is over here. It's a consequence. And it is the greatest consequence in the, uh, of sin, greater than all other consequences of sin, is the physical death of a human being. And I always teach that the reason it's so horrible when you have a loved one die, and the reason you go through so much pain at that time is because you were not designed to go through that. You were not, that's a result of the fall. And every time somebody dies and you go through that horrible grief, and you feel that emotional pain, it is a reminder that this isn't the way God originally intended it. There's a problem in the creation. It's designed to get our attention. uh, And the physical death aspect, when Jesus Christ dies physically, it is to show that God conquers the greatest consequence of our sin in physical death, and that lays the groundwork for the reversal of the curse in all of it and the consequences in all of their various dimensions. So the first thing we see when we look at the outline of this curse is that the serpent, the animal kingdom is addressed. But it's not just the animal kingdom. I want you to hold your place here once again. And let's turn in the New Testament to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And here Paul is giving a slight aside on the doctrine of suffering. And he says, "For I cons- verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be, de- to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of of the sons of God. So here he talks about creation as a whole. That's na- what we would call nature. 
the created world, the, the earth itself, the geology, biology, botany, uh, all the stars, everything's included in creation. And then he explains what he means by that in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to, to futility. The creation is subjected to futility, not just mankind. There are consequences to sin that reverberate through the impersonal creation, the material creation. The creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, that is, it doesn't have its own volition, but because of him who subjected it in hope. See, God brought consequences onto the creation in hope that is looking forward to what would eventually take place in reversing that judgment. Verse 21, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So the creation itself, is if it's going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption, that means it's presently corrupted. So, so all of creation is corrupted. The physical universe is in create, is in corruption. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Well, the simple point I want to make there is that Adam's sin did not affect just Adam or just Adam and Isha or just the human race. It affects the entire Universe. It, it changed the laws of physics. I believe that it is at the point of Adam's sin that the law, the second law of thermodynamics went into effect. The second law of thermodynamics states that basically everything is moving, all energy moves from a state of usability to a state of entropy or non-usability. To put that down where most of us live, everything in life is moving from a state of order to disorder. Just look at the mirror someday if you're over 40 and you have confirmation of the second law of thermodynamics. It affects everything. Where everything is moving from a state of disorder, of order to disorder. Just look at your house. You get up in the morning, you come home, even if nobody's there, there's dust. There's dirt accumulates. If you were to just, if you leave your house for six weeks and you come home, you know, it's not in the same order it was when you left. You'll come home and you'll find that something went wrong. You'll turn on the, the faucet and all of a sudden there's a leak. Some, some washer blew while you were gone. Everything is moving from a state of order to disorder. But it, that law was not in effect prior to the fall. So it, it, there's a tremendous shift that takes place when Adam's, Adam makes that decision. The nature of the physical universe changes. Well, not only does it affect the physical universe, but as we see in verse 14, it affects biology. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. So there is a contrast here and an indication that the cursing of the serpent is more than the other. So that means that the other animals also are cursed. There is judgment on these other animals. There's consequences there. And if we go back to Romans, I mean to Genesis 1, we saw in Genesis 1 that the animals were created and the vegetation was created and the animals were to eat the vegetation. They were all 
gramnivorous. They were herbivores. That means they just ate vegetation. You don't have any meat eaters prior to Genesis 3. All of the animals are grass eaters. Now, if you think about that, you think about eating grass, you have a certain kind of dental structure, you have a certain kind of gastrointestinal system. All of that is, is there. There's a change. Animals that were grass eaters now become meat eaters. You have a change so that uh, Tyrannosaurus rex now comes into being, or at least developed genetically through three or four generations. I don't think it changed, uh, all of that changed instantly, but it changes with two, within two or three generations. And what that shows us is that God built into the DNA structure of all the plants and animals a certain flexibility to handle the chaos that's going to come from sin. So there's not a rigidity there. There's, there's a, a framework or, or a boundary line, and, and the animals still stay within that kind, but now there is a, there's change, there's chaos, there's a disruption, there's a deterioration to, to the uh, line of the animals. And so they're going to be... They're going to be cursed. They're going to be deteriorating. So the animals, there are consequences in the animal kingdoms, but specifically upon the serpent. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, this is not a literal statement, although we think of it that way, because the serpent crawls along the ground, and whatever he kills, he eats right there on the ground. But actually, the phrase, eating dust, is a metaphor for defeat in Scripture. It's used in uh, Psalm 72.9, for example, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow down before him, and his enemies will lick the dust. Isaiah 49.23 is another one. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Other passages like Micah 7.17, Isaiah 65.25 uh, also indicate some of these ideas of eating as being symbolic of, of, of judgment. Isaiah 65.25 talks again about dust being the serpent's food. So all of this indicates defeat and judgment on the serpent. And then in verse 15, we have what is called the Proto-Evangelium. That's what theologians call it. It means the first mention of the gospel. Proto-Evangelium. And you have this conflict here between the serpent seed versus the woman's seed. And it is very unusual to talk about seed, which is the Hebrew word zareh, Z-E-R-E, and this has to do with physical seed, which is normally produced by the male. And here we have a conflict between the serpent seed, and we know that in eschatology and prophecy, this is fulfilled in the Antichrist, the son of perdition, versus the woman's seed, which is Jesus Christ. And in this concept of the woman's seed, there is just a hint of the virgin birth. So what we see in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your seed, that is the Antichrist, and her seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall bruise your head. Of course, this has reference to Satan as well. He shall bruise your head. That is a fatal wound, and you shall bruise his heel, indicating that there would be a some sort of wound on Jesus Christ, which is conquered by his physical resurrection, but it would not be a fatal wound. And the wound to the Antichrist would be a fatal wound. The wound to Satan is a fatal wound that ultimately in history evil will be resolved. And uh, the evil that starts in the human race as a result of the serpent's temptation is ultimately going to be judged and isolated in the lake of fire. Well, that takes us up through the first part of the consequences for the sin And next time, which will be in two weeks, next time we will finish out the consequences to the woman and the consequences to the man and the resolution of the chapter. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, helping us to understand more fully the consequences of sin and how it reverberates throughout all of creation and how the redemption that Jesus Christ paid on the cross began to the the impact of rolling back that curse through his victory over physical death and the resurrection and eventually culminating in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, we thank you for the things that we have learned today, the things we've studied. May we be challenged by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.